like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. You know that from my spot where I'm standing, I have the ability to pick out the biggest Rolling Stones fan of anybody here. Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr. Stone Gossip. Fucking Cameron in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast and today well you could say we're kind of a definitive rolling stones podcast as well because we're actually doing a show that pearl jam played opening up for the stones in 1997 these shows don't get talked about too often and this is the last year that we haven't covered at all in Pearl Jam's catalog. We've done every single other year that they have played a show, but this was a very interesting transitional time, and I think we'll have a lot to say. So please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Randy Sobel. I'm over here. A man of wealth and taste, John Farrar, is over there. Hello, though. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be a lot of Stones references in this show. I I, I can't help myself, you know? Yeah. Can't can't avoid it. Can't avoid it. And they're, oh. they're, they've been in the news a lot now. They're on tour right now. They they just they played Atlanta. I think their social media has been uh, in the news. I guess there was a thing where he had gone to a bar in Charlotte and like no one knew him. Like he oh yeah everywhere they've they've gone he's gone and like post Mick Jagger's posted pics of like 
around the city that they've been in. It's been pretty cool to see. Yeah, they've been in the news a lot lately. Yeah, and obviously for you know uh, some some sad reasons as well. Charlie Watts yeah. passing yeah. away, which to me I'm 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 thinking to myself, man, they're still going with that, and and it kind of it brings me kind of flashbacks of like the Who after John Entwistle died, did their whole tour, and I, you know it doesn't feel right, but I guess like. You know, the show must go on. And, I mean, once and, you get to that age, you just you just keep it going, man. Yeah, and like, I, you're I, like that's what they would want. Just keep it going, right? And I know Charlie is such an important aspect and such an important member of that band that, I, like, you have to think to yourself, like, who's the untouchable here? If Keith and we all know that Keith Richards is never going to die, but if Keith Richards is the one to go, is that where they say, okay, that's it? Or does it have to be Mick Jagger? Do they find another touring guitarist to, to replace? Because I, I don't think he's replaceable either. Yeah. You wouldn't think Charlie's, but, uh, you know, you know how drummers are. All drummers are replaceable. Oh, careful. I, careful. That's, but get, that's, that's what bands letters. think. That's what bands think. However, okay. Um, <laughs> that's, that's enough about that. Uh, to credit the Stones... I think the most credit that they deserve is that they kind of turned rock and roll into a spectacle where I don't think beforehand it was quite that, you know, it was exciting. It was loud, but I think they turned it into a must see a must be there event in the sixties and, you know, and just kind of kept it going. Obviously, a lot of people would say that they are probably the best stadium rock band of all time. And it's kind of a joke now because they, they've been doing it for so long. But shit, like yeah. after 60 years, you give them the credit, you know, like it, that they can still do this. It, it, you got to go back to that Simpsons joke, man. Um, the where Simpsons had a, an episode where they did a flash forward into the future and they were in somebody's room, and on the wall was a poster that says Rolling Stone Steel Wheelchair Tour 2010. That episode, I think, came out in 1995. So if they're thinking that then, and we're 11 years from 2010 now, considering what they thought of the Rolling Stones of being kind of old and out of touch back back in the yeah, mid-90s. Yeah, the, the Simpsons underestimated them. That's something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah they, right. were, Usually they were they're dangerous. On yeah, they were dangerous back in the day. That you know, that was like it, you you know, people always talk about Beatles versus Stones and like yeah, Beatles had the the songs and but the Beatles weren't dangerous. Like they weren't like a dangerous rock and roll band, but the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. were back in the day. Like they were they were the the bad boys to still be, you know, I think I saw it today Mick Jagger is a great grandfather for him to be around 80 years old up there doing this thing. That's something. It's pretty damn impressive. All credit in the world goes out to them. Look, it was a interesting time period, 1997. It's in between, right smack in between No Code and Yield. And at this time, we really weren't getting much Pearl Jam in 1997. They were taking a break. Stone was working on a lot of loose groove record stuff. Jeff had some side projects. This is actually the year that I saw Brad play. And really? I, I was a freshman in college, yeah. Okay, yeah, Brad that would be... Georgia Theater and played, yeah. That would be the year that you'd want to see them, I would think, right? Yep. Look, they're they're in between, and they get kind of invited to come along for this ride with the Rolling Stones, and it happens in Oakland, which is at the home of the Raiders and the A's, which it's not the home of the Raiders anymore, but 
Weirdly enough, it's still the home of the athletics. Nobody has any business. That that place should should have been demolished years ago. But that's beside the point. They were actually asked to open up the Chicago dates that were happening a month before this. And the band had to decline due to personal obligations. So they chose these Oakland shows. The Stones did have some dates in Seattle that were booked at the Kingdom, but this is the re- I love that they actually this is the reason why they didn't do it. So Jeff is on record saying that he didn't want to play the Kingdom because there was nothing musical about the venue. It was not sonically pleasing. That now I understand a lot of why they pick the places that they pick. And and why they are picky when they go places, when you think about ballparks and things like that, why they've only been to three of them. There's a reason for it. And I think they need to be in, especially that they're recording every single show and that they're doing bootlegs for every single show. They need to be in places where they have that sound and where they can kind of get that feel from being on stage. Yeah, they care. You know, they care that you have a good experience at the show. And that you can hear everything no matter where you are. I know there was a, you know, in here in Atlanta, we have the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And I think they had a, a few concerts there the year that it opened. And people were just annoyed. I mean, there were rumors that, like, if you were on the top deck, you couldn't hear anything. Really? Yeah. So people oh. did not get good reviews. So, yeah, that just shows that they, they didn't care. They didn't They didn't check. Nobody went up there to make sure that it sounded good. Uh, right. For a concert. So, yeah, that, that's kudos to them for, right. for actually caring. At the time, like, they're not thinking about concerts being in venues like that. Now you have to build places for all of the above because you need revenue from all of the above. So, yeah, that's shitty that, unfortunately, that happened at, at Mercedes-Benz Dome. But what I think yeah. is is also interesting about... Pearl Jam opening for them in in Oakland is that at Giant Stadium, because they were doing all football stadiums, it seems like, the Foo Fighters opened for them. The Rolling Stones in 1997 are already your grandfather's. You're fading, yeah. You know, of course. They they needed ticket sales. So I think in this tour, they had Foo Fighters, Dave Matthews Band, Sheryl Crow, Smashing Pumpkins, Blues Traveler, and Pearl Jam all opened shows for them because that's them going like, we need to try and have someone relevant. Because if they go out with name whatever 60s band, then it's going to be like, oh, that's that's your dad's tour. Like, and no, yeah, I don't right. see that. It's not cool. Right. So they're trying to grab onto some of what's cool at the moment and get some traction there. Because like you said, like 24 years ago, even then they were an old act. And oh, yeah. they're trying to latch onto some relevant bands there, I think. Yeah, and that that totally makes sense. And you got to think about the time period and you got to think about where Pearl Jam was at with, you know, the whole Ticketmaster thing. And 96 was no Ticketmaster shows. Obviously, in 1998, they would go back to Ticketmaster because they had kind of no other choice. They were trying to get out of it. They were trying to see what they could do. But, you know, essentially what it came down to was that it, it just wasn't worth the bullshit in fighting a ticket company. And they just wanted to to spread music and they wanted to work on their music. And that was what was the focal point. So they gave up the fight. They gave up the boycott. But to get tickets to this show, from my understanding, as much as I've researched, for this show specifically, and I think maybe the second night as well, 
because they did four in a row. They made a service available through being a Sprint customer, and you were able to get tickets for being a Sprint customer, but you had to go through the ticket distributor called Bass, which was a Bay Area-based ticket distributor. So interesting, you know, that they can do this without, and I don't, I don't know from the other shows that they they did, the other stadium shows that the Foo Fighters and Dave Matthews and all them played. I don't know if they were using Ticketmaster for those. I don't know if that was brought up to the Stones beforehand. Like, hey, if you hire Pearl Jam, then you can't use Ticketmaster. I don't know if that was a thing, which that's probably why they implemented Sprint in all this. I believe they, they sponsored the tour. So interesting from that point. But two shows were on sale at first. There were two shows announced. And I think Every other venue that they did those shows, like the the Giant Stadium shows that they did with the Foo Fighters, I think they they did two shows, but nobody else got four. So after the two shows went on sale, a third would go on sale about a couple hours later, and then about a month before the show actually goes on, the fourth was added because the tickets were in such high demand. So the Stones got what they wanted. They they got those ticket sales, and uh, and it worked. And, and look, I think, especially for Pearl Jam at the time, if, if anybody was hungry to go see them, you know, especially on the West Coast, which they were there in 95, but, but man, a lot of those people probably had to miss those shows because of, of what happened and all the rescheduling and stuff. So there might be people that, that are saying, okay, I'll go and I'll spend a little bit more money to go see Pearl Jam kind of play a half a show opening for the Stones because I missed them in when I was supposed to go see them in San Diego. Or I went to the polo field since it's it's same area as San Francisco. I went to the polo fields and Ed got sick and Neil Young replaced him. So, you know, this would be the next opportunity that, that they would have. No, there was a San Jose show kind of mixed in between there. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just interesting how that all kind of developed you know there were people that went to this to see pearl jam i think you know you can go back and read some reviews and stuff from the the rolling stones perspective one of the things i saw was that you know there were kind of a mix of like the older kind of gray-haired people and like the younger kind of tattooed and pierced people so i think pearl jam did bring a little bit of a draw to this show so that's interesting that they would get some more added on. I wonder if that was like capitalizing on something that they felt like, oh, this is your only chance to see Pearl Jam this year. Go ahead and take it where those other bands were more like consistently on the road, consistently on the road. So yeah. And it's it's based on what reviews you look at. And there, there's the one from Karen's review on five horizons that said that, you know, there were moments in the show, like things that are benchmark moments from Pearl Jam fans like arms raised in a V where everybody sticks their arms up in a V and, you know, other call and response moments that, that they might have during songs weren't there. And it was odd not to see them there. And, it, and it's kind of interesting from that perspective, because you just don't see a lot of the crowd in the YouTube video at all. You don't see their reaction to Pearl Jam, but it looks like it, what it was, was it was just taken from the live on-screen feed because there's a lot of quick cuts and everything like that. So I'm sure it was that. Let's talk a little before we kind of get into There's only 14 songs, so we can have this bullshitting conversation here because there are a lot of things to kind of tee up. But the other thing we need to tee up is the introduction into the Yield era. And while 
they had the album and they were ready for the album. There was no official announcement for what the album was going to be called. I believe during the week these shows were happening, they were doing some of the art for for the record, which would be the you know t- the the photos of the yield sign in Montana. But they also they played that that surprise show as the Honking Seals in Santa Cruz. And they introduced three brand new Yield songs that no one had heard before. And I don't even know at the time, and and you were more locked into this, did people know that a new album was coming at the time? Or was this when they hit this surprise show up and, you know, people kind of were preparing for them to to go on tour with the the Stones? Did people know that, okay, this is going to be the introduction to something new? Yeah, I don't know that that like people knew that they were going to be playing new songs, but, you know, you had the rumor pit by this point so there would be like oh you know you never know they would always be like dropping little clues and like you kind of knew that they up in the studio like they were they were seen in atlanta or seen in seattle or seen in chicago you kind of knew like what the cycle was and when things were happening a little bit but obviously santa cruz was a warm-up and unannounced but yeah i think it was kind of like oh you know are they gonna play new songs we'll see you know is that sort of attitude it seems like the santa cruz show Everything that happened there was just completely out of the blue. Like, okay, yeah. here's a new song called Given a Fly. Here's a new song called Did the Evolution. Here's here's Wishlist. And here's one for all, any of you that were at the, the Salt Lake City show and the San Jose show uh, and brought back Brain of Jay, as we talked about last week, which was not fully formed in 1995 at that Salt Lake City show. But at that point was brought back and reissued at that Santa Cruz show, and I think played at one of the four of these. These set lists don't really differ too much. They pretty much start out the same, kind of with like the Hell Hell Animal Dissident, and it seemed like they went into this with about, oh, 20 songs or so, and said, that's, that's going to be our set. We're going to mix it up a little bit, but we'll kind of get into the construction as we go along. Before we get into the show, and this is usually held for the encore situation, but we don't have an encore in this show, so we're going to talk about this right now. We're going to mention what's going on at Patreon. Right off the bat, I want to thank some brand new patrons. First off, I want to thank the first person, Brian Tukolsky. I just want to say for Brian, and if I'm not mistaken on this, we got a comment from Brian on our website for the Penn State show that we did, and that was in 2019 that we did it. This was before John was a part of this show, mind you. <laughs> that episode, ask, ask the people involved in that episode, which would be me, which would be Matt, which would be Patrick Pogel. Ask any of us how much of a disaster that episode was and how frustrating that recording was. And basically I I know Matt's listening and he knows how he knows how awful it was. It's just funny that, that he commented off of that one. And then at the same day that he commented on that on, on our website, he joins Patreon. So if that, really sold him on Patreon that episode, literally the four hour fucking episode, then 
thank you. Our hard work has finally gone to fruition and finally meant something. No, I'm kidding. It's always, it's just, that's a really funny fucking coincidence that, that the last three years I've said that is the most train wreck disaster of, of an episode that we've had. And uh, the connection is, is just too funny. So thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining. Uh, also a big uh, thank you to both Brooke Krauss and Maureen Oshk. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It could be Oski, it could be Osk. I could be wrong either way. So Maureen, if you're listening in, please correct me if if I'm wrong. But uh, look, if you want to head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash live and four legs, you donate to the show over there. What we have over there now is the Give and Fly Evolution episode, but also... On liveonfourlegs.com this week, we decided to put it out there free for the world because why not? I think everybody was very cool with some situational stuff that happened last week. I don't really feel like getting into it too much. If you know, you know, you're out on social media, you're seeing stuff, you know, you know. Uh, But, you know, I I, I felt like as a debt of gratitude for the people that were really got in touch with, with, with me and, and, uh, and reached out. I, I felt it was, you know, it, it, w- it was a cool gesture to, to just give them something for free. So it's only on live on four legs.com. You can go to live on four legs.com. You can go to the given the fly evolution episode page, and that'll be up there free, but you cannot listen to that on your Apple and Spotify, your normal podcast platforms that will not be there. It'll only be on Patreon or live on four legs.com. And later this week, we're going to have another exclusive episode. Hey, I, you know, we, I, I think we talked about just kind of overstimulating this this podcast a little bit, but there's more stuff that, that, that we want to do and that we feel is necessary to do. And one of the things that has been on our radar uh, for a while now is the CBGB show from 1991, and we got a chance to do that, uh, record it last week, and that's coming out later this week. So... If those are things that you want to hear, then live on four legs, search for us on Patreon, donate to our cause, which is basically giving right back to you guys. When the band goes out on tour, we'll, we'll be at places and we'll, we'll try to strike, strike up events and we'll put together more merchandise and things like that. And that money will go towards that stuff. So the dollar tier, $5 tier, $10 tier, everything is all good. It all helps out. John, anything to add to that? Um, thanks just, yeah, thanks to Brian, Brooke and Maureen. That's fantastic. Hope there, you guys get a chance to go back and, uh, check out some of the content there. Like I said, go to live on four legs.com. That's the easiest way to do it. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I'd say back to the rock, but we never got to it. So here, here it comes the show, the show starts and believe it or not playing over the loudspeaker at this. And I at first thought when listening to this on YouTube, like, oh, that's just, maybe some edited splice clips together and this doesn't make any sense but they're coming out to the stage to red dot and i like yeah maybe 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 that accidentally got mixed in with a 1998 show but i checked one of the other shows from 1997 they definitely came out to red dot at one of those shows because you actually it's it's the shot of the stage so you you know that that that's that's for real that's that's the real deal so interesting that that would become what it became on the record and that they were using it as an intro at that point yeah very cool they'd been doing you know go back on all the records you know if you go back to master slave they've always had stuff like that so and it's cool they they knew they weren't gonna weren't gonna play it so yeah give give them a taste of it Ed, 
right here, right off the bat. I And this is, look, we had four shows to choose from, but there was a reason why I chose this one. And I think it was for this jacket alone. <laughs> right <laughs> off the bat, Ed comes out onto the stage wearing this Beetlejuice-esque striped jacket, uh, white black stripes, and look, it could either be Beetlejuice or it could be something that was straight out of Mick Jagger's wardrobe that I mean, it's not tight enough to be part of Mick Jagger's wardrobe, so I I don't know why it would have been that, but also one of the comments that I read said that it looked like something out of kind of the mod scene or something like that. Yeah, so, that's what I thought. Like, this is his 60s mod phase. Absolutely. Right. Right, right, right. I mean, he's kind of got the short, shorter hair going, but it's kind of scraggly a little bit. This is an interesting era for Ed, and these shows, he seems a little bit more reserved and shy, even then the, the, the 96 shows a little bit. Oh, yeah, and I think we we've, we talked about it, too, where I think, and this being, I think, the first one of the four, they were a little nervous mm-hmm. to go out and, and play like this. The stage setup is weird that, you know, Rolling Stone stuff is all backlined and Karen talks about that a little bit where like they didn't have a lot of space and I think it, it takes them a few songs here to kind of like feel it out and, and figure out and get comfortable with everything but th- I think there's a little bit of nerves and of course if if there's anyone in the band that you're going to be able to tell how they're doing it's Ed and I think he you can tell at first he's a little nervous a little uh, hesitant maybe yeah you, you can tell there's there's some tension at the beginning of the show. Yeah, yeah, and and it's just it's interesting to see and you know the the one guy that you can kind of say might not be going through this would would be Mike and Mike seems to be in a pretty good mood which like and I don't want to say anything it's it's not made to be a negative statement but this is kind of at a time where Mike was going through a little bit of a rough period I believe with prescription pills and he had gained some weight and I think a lot of people kind of remember Mike from the single video theory and he, you know, he didn't really look like himself and, and it, it's, it's a little rough going back and seeing that, but I think that's just sort of where he was at the time. But you got to think Mike is the big Rolling Stones fanatic from this band. This is his element. This is what he's wanted his whole entire life. This is big for him. The rest of the band, while, yeah, okay, we're opening for the Stones, it might just be a little bit over their heads. Look, we've covered this. They don't play in, in these stadiums. They don't play right. in these kind of places. Ed, even at the time, is probably just like, oh, you know, we have to do that Santa Cruz show because we're about to play in front of 60,000. I want to be in front of 500. Yeah, and, and they hadn't played a show in almost a year. Right, you know. right. So, you know, going from zero to 60 is, uh, yeah. yeah, right. That, that, that's a lot to get used to. So uh, they open the show with Hell Hell.
you can tell that No Code at the time, the songs are starting to fade out a little bit. Hail Hail is the only No Code song played at the show. Yeah, there the are one. a couple more that are played at the other shows. I think they open one with Sometimes. I think Off He Goes shows up in another one, but I think that's it. So you can tell they're just about done with that record. There's no In My Tree, there's no Red Mosquito, there's none none of those songs, but Hail Hail is there every night, and they're still utilizing this song. One of my biggest points from this show, and I'm going to try not to bring it up with every single song, but it happens in just about every single song. Listen to Ed's voice, and tell me, okay, did you think it sounded different? Like, compared to, maybe not the errors around it, but just in general of what you know his voice to sound like? I don't know. Interesting. There's a little bit of a flutter to it. That's the best way that I can put it. And it's almost like he's singing through his teeth instead of singing with his vocal cords. It's coming out a little light, a little feathery. And it's interesting that I kind of like it because he's able to harmonize in, in spots where he isn't usually able to, but he also puts some power into his voice when he has to. And he'll do it in Hail Hail, he'll do it in Animal, he'll do it in a couple of these songs, but then it's just like those little pieces. And, and you got to listen to some of the other ones that they did from all four of these shows. It sounds the same exact way. His voice is not full. There's something held back a little bit there. I don't know if, if, if it's just the situation and being in front of that many people in the crowd, or I don't know if he was trying something new with it, but it seemed like every time I think of 1997 and think of these couple shows, I think of Ed's voice just sounding a little bit lighter. Yeah, that, that could be going along with some of the nerves and everything, and we'll, it'll be interesting to see if that, when we, when we get to the other shows, later the other, the other three if that continues i'd be curious to, to see there's also i don't know if you recognize this but along with the, the way his voice sounds there's some different intonations in hell hell there's some different intonations in some of these songs coming up that it's not that he's not giving power he's just kind of he's changing things up a little bit you know maybe the verse the chorus it doesn't have those kind of I- identical parts that you hear from the record or you hear from other live versions but like he's just changing things and modifying things just a little bit and i'm not sure if that's a conscious thing or if that's a what what he's trying to go for with that but i i think in even flow we'll get to that point but what do you think of the hail hail performance to start the show i thought it was great and it's a it's a great choice for an opener just the way that it that it drives everything. I mean, it's you need something that's going to come out and grab the Rolling Stones fans' attention, the people that aren't there to see you. And mm-hmm. this is like it's it's upbeat, it's driving, it it's a little more hard rocking than a lot of stuff that was on No Code and a lot of stuff that they have. So yeah, I think I think it's a great opener. And I, the ending is a little weird, like it's a little bit of an abrupt ending. They're kind of like and stop. And it's weird because I think, you know, the, being like a soundboard recording, you don't get – there's not a lot of crowd noise, so you don't really get to gauge, like, what kind of reaction they got. But you can tell, like, some people are into it, but it's not like a full-throated applause like we're used to hearing. So that was a little off-putting. But, yeah, I thought it was, uh, thought it was a good choice to open. You got to think of what they did open with at all four yeah. of these shows. Yeah. Hail, hail. The next night, I think, was Long Road. The night after that was I Got Shit, which I think was the only time they ever opened with it. 
That's a mm-hmm. really, really cool idea for an opener. Do it more often. Obviously, yeah. now it's probably too late for it now, but 1997, <laughs> 1998, ah, oh, man, they should have done it a lot more. And I think the last one they, they opened up with was Sometimes. So a bit different. You know, I, I don't think Hail Hail was really being opened with on the 96 store. I think most of what they were doing was long road release Sometimes. Uh, so you weren't really getting that, but but to kind of connect this to to something that you would get a year later is that Hail Hail would open up your first show in Atlanta '98. So, That's right. Yep. You know, that was that was something in the back of their heads. They're like, okay, maybe we'll do this again sometimes. Animal is next. You can hear a little bit. I again, I don't want to say it every song, but that flutter, the trailing voice a little bit. It's almost like he's trying to sing a little bit higher than usual, but he's not again exhausting the power until it needs to be exhausted with visceral growls and and animal i think the band is is starting to sound pretty juiced up and although there is some nerves and you can kind of see it within their faces i don't hear it within their music i think that they're pretty tight to start this opening run yeah i think that's again that goes back to the nerves like you're, you're they're playing a little tight they're not fully letting it go I think there's there's a part in Animal, I think, where Ed even kind of, like, blocks out the stage lights to kind of look out and try to see, because he's looking to make that connection, right? And he, Very tough. You're in this huge stadium this with a lot of these people who aren't there to see you. And he, I think he was, he, that's kind of like him going out, like, what, what's it look like out there? Like, I can't even, he can't even tell. They, it felt like they were playing in, like, a little box. Yes. Uh, fully... 100% agree and it's, it's yeah. challenging to watch because when you watch it I think the box theory is is perfect for this it feels like they're condensed but it also feel, feels like there's like a tent or an awning over them over their heads mm-hmm. like yeah. you never see any headroom you never see anything much past the little you know the little fibers on top of their heads you just don't the best that you see of the crowd I think a little bit later on during one of Ed's speeches you, you see the crowd through Ed but every now and again when they have that Jack cam uh, behind Jack which you never really get to see Jack's face you just kind of get to see his back you can see a little bit of the crowd but you don't get any vibe of where they are especially it does not feel like they're in a football baseball stadium yeah, it's not disconnected. at all very disconnected yeah and that's again part of the reasons why I wanted to cover this is just that it's it's weird. It's a weird show. It's a weird. All four of these are just strange to watch. It looks like it's out of I don't know. It's out of like a B movie Pearl Jam or some <laughs> shit like that. You know. <laughs> so, but look, the the performances are very good and Animal. Again, you know, you're coming off Hail Hail. I think that this is a, a nice little early run, and that's going to get you into Dissident, which is usually not a third song in the set. But I think when you're you got 14 that you need to play, you're condensing a little bit of what would be some of your top ones, and Dissident would be maybe your five or six, and you're putting it up to three. And uh, again, I, I am listening to Ed's voice in this, and it's very melodic, and I thought he nailed the choruses in this. He doesn't hit that part that I always want him to hit. He, he lets go of that, of course. But, you know, it, it's it, it's just got this, this lighter, like, listen to the way that he's singing the chorus.
feels like there is reservations from it, but the reservations almost feel like they're meant to be there, and it actually sounds really good the way he's doing it, because again, I think it's just this little flutter in his voice. Hmm. Something a little different. Yeah. I, I thought this was a pretty good version of Dissonant, so, uh, but again, Ed's voice, that's what I keep hearing in this. So that's it's going to be part of the conversation, and I won't have much to say after Evenflow. That's that's all I'll say. After Evenflow, we'll kind of get into a groove here. But after Dissident, before Evenflow, Ed says thanks for being there tonight. Better tonight than tomorrow when there's supposed to be more rain than groupies at Altamont. Calm the fuck Ooh. on. <laughs> That CBGB show that we Ooh. mentioned before, uh, we're just in the week of cringeworthy moments for Ed. That the CBGB's show that we mentioned before, there's a cringeworthy moment where Ed brings up Magic Johnson, and you have to think November of 1991. What's going on with Magic Johnson? Well, he just got his diagnosis for HIV positive, and Ed makes a cringeworthy joke that the crowd just does not react very well to. And yeah, you can't make an Altamont. That come on. Come on. They, yeah. they invite you. Yeah, three but, songs in, they invite you on tour with them to, to play four shows. And three songs in, you're going to make an Altamont ride for Come the Fuck On. Yeah, it's they, a mixed mixed reaction to that, I, I would assume. Yeah. yeah, and you can tell afterwards he didn't seem very thrilled that he even said it. He seems like he's not in a pristine mood as it is, and that kind of reflects it, so... I don't know. That's that's the best I got, which is not really an excuse for anything. But yeah, yeah cringeworthy. And if you don't know Altamont, if you don't know Altamont, just look it up. Look up the the Gimme Shelter, a Rolling Stones documentary. It's uh, it's phenomenal and scary shit. But uh, we move on to Even Flow. So here's the intonation in his voice that got me. It's in the chorus. He'll sing it in a way that he'll begin his life again. Sorry if I, my voice is terrible. I just, I podcast. I don't, I don't I don't sing. <laughs> but listen to the way that he takes that line, changes it up, and it's almost like it's out of some other song. It's not like it's off-putting, and, and it's actually very refreshing. I loved hearing it, but it's just interesting the way he's going about it because you don't really get this going forward in the 98 shows at all. I think it, it might even be a little bit of rust. Like, he hasn't sang the song in a year. Like you said at the beginning, he might not even been conscious. Like, that's just the way he does it now, you know? And it's, you get these certain times, and then when you get into 98, when they're on the road all the time and they're sound checking every night and they're doing things like playing the song four out of every five nights then you get back into it and you kind of find your groove with it again but for this little one-off week of the year that they're playing yeah you get weird stuff like this because they're not in that groove where they've been on tour for three or four months yeah i'll go back to one of the articles i, I mentioned some of the things that jeff had mentioned from one of the articles that we found this week but 
Jeff did actually say in it that Ed was working with some new things and new techniques in his voice. So I wonder if that's added in. And you can you can, you can do an evolution of Ed's voice throughout the years, and you can tell, you know, with certain songs and how deep he's going in. I think last exit when last exit comes up in in a couple of songs, you're be able to tell how much he changed that up from what he was doing in 1995-1996. It's just it's the changing of the garden. And 98, he'll be doing something different. In 2000s it'll be completely different from what you you know cigarette smoker too so obviously you're gonna kind of have to deal with that and some wear and tear on the voice as well but especially from how hard they went in the first six years or so you have to keep existing and you don't get to today if you can't change yesterday so and the rest of even flow mike is very very funky in the solo it's Really, I consider this to be Mike's first big spotlight, even though he has a, uh, a solo and animal, and uh, you know, Dissident is kind of his too. But it feels like Even Flow is a little bit more of the breakout where, okay, the band is gelling, the band is feeling a little bit more in their own right now. Yeah, I agree. Uh, also, you gotta think, it's Oakland, it's cold, it's gotta be cold there, right? In <laughs> November, yeah. Yeah, so, all right, Jeremy comes up next. And if you're a Stones fan, but you know the base knowledge of Pearl Jam songs, then this is probably your section right here, even Flo and Jeremy. But going back to what mentioned before, you're not getting those crowd moments within Jeremy. You're not getting a lot of the everybody raising their arms, arms raising a V. You're not getting the ooh You're not getting that kind of thing. So maybe from a crowd aspect, it's, it's a little tame compared to especially if you're if you you were at all, a lot of those shows in 1996 it, it probably pales in comparison to those but you know you kind of have to say look you're in the midst of a completely different generation baby boomers uh, versus gen xers there you know completely different people so you're not going to get that reaction but i think that also in this watching i don't know if you watched uh, ed's facial expressions during during jeremy but definitely a treat watching his, his facial expression I, I didn't know what to what to think of it but they're, they're interesting yeah it is and for me i think jeremy's actually for for a different reason i think this was actually one of the highlights of the show and that's really just the the ending for me i thought was really cool and kind of hypnotic like again it's it's a jack show so you're gonna get these endings to songs like we talked about when we did salt lake city mm-hmm. you're gonna get these kind of like hypnotic trancey moments on and especially the drums i thought were great but the thing is too like look at this set list the first five songs like hail hail is a single animals a single dissidents a single even flows a single jeremy's a single this is the definition of of the greatest hit show and the you know we're gonna get a few scattered out you know, throughout the rest of the show that aren't. But it, I thought it was interesting that they, I don't know if they've ever done a show like that where they've come out and played like just single after single after single after single to start with. Yeah, probably not. And look, I think the definition of single is a little rough around the edges a little bit because yeah, I'm just going it's not like things that were released as singles. Sure. It's yeah. not like Hail Hail and Animal had huge, or Dissonant, I should say, had yeah. huge radio response to them. The other songs probably, yes. But yeah, I see what you're saying there. And I think your your point on, on how the end of Jeremy really picked up, there was a point, and I was able to kind of point this out, where you can hear Jack speed up. 
and you can hear Jack gradually pick up the pace and the band following along to what he was doing. And I think that goes into what you were saying with that hypnotic type sound. I think that drew you in. I, I think yeah. that that's yeah. that's kind of where I sat with that. So. exit if you want jack you have last exit and anytime i hear jack in the beginning of that i am this is just oh, i'm i'm in for the ride versions of Last Exit, one of my favorite songs that he plays, and um, it's snare, just listen to that snare popping right in the beginning, it's just un-frickin' real. Um, Mike getting a little bit funky, ethereal with his solo, and the song just feels like a ride, and then you're kind of building to that big moment at the end where Ed just completely breaks out, completely shatters a glass ceiling with, with the voice at the end there, it, it's just strong. Strong version from Ed, strong version from Jack, all the way around. I think Last Exit for me is going to have to be a highlight. Yeah, it felt like this was one where they were kind of like, okay, we're going to put a song here that we want to play. It kind of felt like they felt like they had to play those ones before this, but here's one that you kind of felt the the tension loosen up a little bit. Like, okay, we're into the show now. It's going fine. We can kind of like loosen up, and here we're going to we're going to let go a little bit on this one. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely felt that too. Yeah, last exit benefited, I guess, from the the band feeling more comfortable in their own yeah. skin with this. Yeah. So, and also like you think about it, they're they're playing a show in a place for sixty thousand people, 
but it feels probably to them more like they're playing to a couple hundred because it's, you know, I, I think even with the lights, like the, the main stage light setting that the, that the stones were using wasn't being used for what Pearl Jam had. So it's it's not one of these situations where Ed can be like, hey, everybody in the back, I can see you in the back. It's not right. one of those situations. He's seeing like up front and a little bit to the sides and that's it. So it's, it's got to be different feel to play big arena type songs to just what's in front of you when you're so used to kind of seeing a whole 360 degrees of people around you to play these songs that that work in that atmosphere and last exit i can see last exit is is more of kind of like a a club song or more of a club venue song especially the way that they brought it up was kind of like that so i think that probably just worked for the atmosphere a little better yeah, and, and put yourself in the shoes of a of a Rolling Stones fan in 1997. The, the hairline's going a little bit, you're getting a little bit gray, getting a little bit long in the tooth, and you've got to sit through this young band who's playing too loud and playing too fast, and you don't know any of their songs. So, yeah, they, they don't have everyone's full attention. I don't think I can picture, I've been at these shows where everyone's just waiting for the headliner and no one cares about the opening band and it's yep. you people are talking and people are turning around and waving to their friends but now people would be on their phones then you know we, nobody had phones but you know you you don't have everyone's full attention so i think that's got to be weird for him someone who's used to connecting with an audience like looking out and seeing everyone doing these to jeremy ways in the v and animal one two three four five against one he probably wasn't getting that at the show so yeah it's a little weird right All right, moving on to the next one, which is going to be very interesting to talk about here. Ed says, we're going to try a new one on you and see if it fits. This is number two for Given a Fly, the second time being played, the first time being the two nights before at the uh, Santa Cruz Honky Seals show. And that is something we actually talked about in full detail on our Given a Fly Evolution episode. So this is kind of also timed pretty perfectly because of that. This is why we wanted to make sure that we did the first night of this so we would get the earliest versions of that that we could to kind of get that early indication of what it was going to be. And that's a lot of, if you haven't listened to what the Evolution episodes are, that's what it is. It's starting with where you started with it how you developed it and what it became today and and right there it's how you're starting and really if they aren't boxed in and enclosed in this little spot and they're able to kind of you know freely run about the stage and and it, it feels more of a big environment given a fly in this moment should soar it's the big moment i think in one of these shows he says something like the the roof is open so we're gonna fly right I think he says, yeah, we're going to take advantage of the fact that there's no roof on this place and and play this one and try to soar. Yeah, it's a cool quote. Obviously, the first time they're playing it outdoors, which this is a pivotal key outdoor song, especially coming off this being a club song, which it's absolutely not a club song. So this is really maybe feels like the first time they're able to showcase it the right way.
getting into the open air and it's it's too like you these new songs always get a little bump it's like the energy just gets turned up a little bit because it's new and like they're getting to showcase these songs that they've been working on and it definitely felt like the performance was was elevated above like again the ones at the beginning kind of felt like those had to be played but now they're getting to the part where we want to play these and they're excited to play new songs you, you kind of see that on every new album tour right? you saw that with with the gigaton songs at see here now in ohana like they had a little more juice to them because they're they're just excited to play new songs i thought it was great they, the coolest thing too i thought the end jeff and mike do a little like low five handshake yes. like yeah that, <laughs> that was, was very like, cool that was cool we got we got we got through that one that was yep. awesome yeah that was mm-hmm. that was fun to see Look, I think what we do need to address as well is your guy, Jack Irons. Oh, yeah. And the way that Jack Irons plays the song, obviously much different than the approach that Matt Cameron would take a couple months after after Jack would leave. You just listen to that build and the way that he builds and the way that he hits that snare and just bringing in a different approach. I think that it, in a way is, is sort of the kind of approach that he brings with within my tree, but kind of elevated to a way that you can let Mike soar alongside it. I don't know if you exactly have the same ideal within my tree, but I I think they're in a groove with this and they feel good about it because Jack is driving the ship on it and sounds very, very good on Jack's end. Oh yeah, it's one of those songs that's that's right in his his wheelhouse, right in his area. He's he, he, every version of him, like we, you know, we listened to a lot of versions for the Evolution episode, and every version with him, there's just something special, something magical to it. Yep, and even this, you get a little bit of the bite in the chorus. Those are all yeah. things that we'll elaborate on in the Evolution episode. We'll elaborate on Jack versus Matt versions. We'll elaborate on how Ed's, you know, in the beginning had kind of a bite in the chorus, screaming the fly sections, and, and instead of later, it would kind of become more of a call and response thing. So a lot of different versions to talk about there. Again, we mentioned it before. Check it out if you're on Patreon or it is up for free on liveonfourlegs.com. It will not be in your Apple Spotify providers. It will not be there, but it'll be on our platform. So very, very good version, Give the Fly. We will see two more Yield sort of debuts, <laughs> sophomore sophomore debut, I, I suppose, later on in this show. So Daughter following up. Uh, highlight of Daughter is Mike playing with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> and they do the... Uh... The Saturday Night Live, hey, hey, my, my. They do, yes. That, uh, that I, I absolutely is not bearing that lead. But yeah. look, how often do you see Mike playing with a cigarette hanging Doing, out doing the Keith Richards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are little touches in Daughter that sound really good. I think it's uh, Jack's backbeat on, on the tag a little bit where you don't really pay attention to the percussion on, on the tag. Nowadays, it's it's just kind of in, in the mix, but you're kind of waiting for what the actual tag is going to be. But, you know, hey, hey, my, my, I think that's kind of throwing a bone to all of those people in the crowd that... Uh, you know, it's classic rock radio to them and they know the song and if they are going to do something like that that could connect them with those baby boomers that are that are saying like, oh well they like Neil Young I didn't think the kids like Neil Young Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's a good moment for that
I wonder too if it was a callback to Saturday Night Live and be like, hey, maybe some people know this because sure. it was on TV and that that was a, a prominent version. So maybe go back to that and try to grab people's attention a little bit. Possibly. And they, they wouldn't do it too much after that. I think they would do it two yeah. or three more times, but yeah. that would be it. Corduroy, very intoxicating intro. Drones, it sucks you in. And it's the first time Ed's picking up the guitar. He'll have a three song stretch here. And that's the only time he'll pick up the guitar in this. But I don't know if you even caught this. There is a little like in between daughter and Corduroy. There's a little one off chord. Did you catch it? I did not. Okay. The chord sounds like the opening chord to Interstellar Overdrive. Hmm. Okay. Swear to God. Swear to God. And I'll play it right here for everybody else. I don't know how conscious that was. I don't know if that's sub- subliminal messaging for hmm. way later, because that's not something they would do in their shows until 1998. So yeah, it's not I like. Mean, not, not that far removed. So maybe right. playing around with it. Right. Either playing around with it or like, it's just one of those things. It kind of has the same tone as when Ed kind of just like plucks those strings and, and yeah, yeah. when he does that, it kind of has the same, same tone. I mean, that's why, that's why you do it. Cause it's of, in the same key. Yeah. Of, of course. Yeah. So I wonder if that's just the, just the hard chord of that and maybe hearing that he thinks later on that sounds an interstellar overdrive. Hmm. I got an idea. Let's try this. But I don't know. Look, I think we did the evolution of Corduroy already, so we might have missed the boat on that. But this is a very good version. Very good version of Corduroy. And um, you're talking about Corduroy with a three-guitar attack that explodes at the end, and Jack absolutely manhandling the cymbals at the end. Very cool outro. We had a cool outro on last week's version. It's not like that, but... If they wanted to continue it and make it a jam, maybe in a regular Pearl Jam show, that could be the absolute standout highlight in a regular show set. But this was excellent. Very good version. Yeah, Mike and Stone doing a little bit more Keith and Ronnie doing a little dueling solo there at the end, kind of going off, doing their own thing at the same time. That was awesome. And then gets kind of chill at the end like jack brings it way down there's like a little cool jam which is kind of like very cool just just kind of like chilled out for a little bit yeah excellent person give me that for like a couple of minutes man yeah, i love yeah. and and you hear though that type of version sometimes especially with jack where they get to that point and it sounds like that but i think maybe last week's version of salt lake city was the best example of how they would elaborate on it and they would build back into kind of what the solo was but give me that every time oh good god give me that every time love it Wishlist. It's the second time Wishlist had been played. Obviously, we're speaking like a broken record here because they played it at the Honking Seal show. But unlike Given a Fly, it seems like they weren't as comfortable with Wishlist. And by they, I kind of mean Ed. 
But when it really is Ed, it trickles down to the rest of the band because he is kind of playing a, a lead role in this a little bit. And you can tell he's trying to think about it. His face kind of looking out into the open distance like, okay, just trying to remember what the next line is. the song and think about singing it without hearing the song and can you remember each line and where it goes each wish and what spot it belongs in the song because i i usually cannot if if it's just in my head i'm usually scatterbrained about it yeah it's it's a tough one and this is a sneaky difficult song to sing and to play i think and this is his big moment right because he's going to do the lebo solo he's going to have a little moment he's going to be the focus with his guitar and they, you know that wasn't a thing he was quite comfortable with at this point so yeah i think this one's got a little a little more pressure on him for this one than there, than there is on giving the fly and look i think at the end they sort of figure it out a little bit and it, it kind of pops at the end a little bit more and it kind of feels like what wishlist would become and you can kind of see the hints of that, but even to the naked eye, and maybe one of the Stones fans in the crowd is probably thinking, all right, maybe this song didn't hit as well as, as, as the last song did, or a couple songs. You can tell that it's new and a little unrehearsed. And he does that, he, he just does the line at the end, the Wish I Was a Radio song, the one that fades out on the record. Mm-hmm. You could barely hear it as the song's ending, but right. here he's, he's coming on saying it, Wish I Was a Radio song. I think they maybe thought that this was going to be the one that was going to break through on this record and break into that group of like your daughters and Jeremy's and even Flo's and the lives. And I'm kind of surprised that it didn't. But, and again, this is the crowd, so he's kind of like saying, look, this is the radio-friendly one. You know, this is going to be the hit. If Yield and No Code were reversed and swapped and they decided to release Given a Fly and Wishlist and do the Evolution all singles, yes, I think it does hit. But I think the reason why it doesn't is because after No Code, I think people are just fried. And Everybody moved on. It, they did. It Bush and Live and Sublime and No Doubt. and Yeah, yeah. at that point, it was definitely Sublime yeah. 98. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Everybody moved on. Nice little tie-in, because i got to mention this, because it is Wishlist, and we are in this year, 2021, when they played Wishlist both times at See Here Now and Ohana, they did the Waiting on a Friend tag at the end, which I, you know, is a great tie-in to this, and obviously being with the Stones, and, and uh, you know, it was it was a dedication to Charlie Watts and, and Norm MacDonald at, at the time, so uh, yeah, I, I figured I'd mention that for anybody that is trying to pick up on, on those kind of things, just yeah. they're always Yep, full circle. They're always thinking those things. And I'm I'm sure, look, I think the fourth night they played Waiting on a Friend, I think Ed sang with them, if I'm not mistaken. 
I think so. So yeah. yeah. So that song, when you, when you think of the Stones and think of the band, of course they did like Beast of Burden and Angie and Sympathy for the Devil, Give Me Shelter in little bits and tags and little bits and pieces. Jumping Jack Flash during Love Boat Captain, but the one that is really the most concrete that they've done of the Stones has been Waiting on a Friend. So definitely a good connection there. Better Man. All right. Uh, don't have much to say about Better Man. It just didn't feel very confident. Didn't really have the bite that later versions would do. It just felt like, okay, you get a little bit of a jam, but it's over and out. It didn't feel like it was a highlight at all from this. For me, it kind of felt like it was starting to come into its own a little bit. And, and 98 would be when it would really break through and become kind of what it is. But this is still lumped in with those... 95, 96 versions where they still really don't know what to do with it. Right. And again, it's another song that people might recognize, but are they kind of comfortable with doing it? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, This is probably my favorite moment from the show, so I want to get to this. Ed thanks everybody, and he says, From where I'm standing, I have the ability to pick out the biggest Rolling Stones fan of anybody here. So he points out, he's... You know, he's looking, he's got, he's, got his, he's got his hand out, and he's looking out to the crowd, and he spots them out. He's like, oh, I don't think it's you. And he says something specific that I don't remember exactly what it is. And does all this looking, all this looking. I see your t-shirt. Something like that, yeah. And he then turns to his right and says, oh, it's Michael McCready. <laughs> it's Mike McCready over there. And mentions... Oh man, this is this is just funny because like who thinks of this? I think this was another moment in the show that made me want to cover it so much because it had me cracking up hysterically the first time I heard it. Said Mike was so obsessed with the Stones that he would pull out all the records and he'd count the grooves in the records. He said lines, I want to say grooves. And he just proceeds to bullshit on this and he says, "All right, Mike, how many grooves were in Beggar's Banquet? How many grooves were in Some Girls? And Mike, like like Rain Man, basically is like, uh, 2,571. <laughs> Some oh, random freaking number. Way too many. <laughs> like a comical amount of way too many. Like Right, like 25,000 or some shit like that. Yeah, yeah, like there's, no, there's like probably less than 100. And then he's like, okay, well, how many are on Hot Rocks, which is obviously the, du- the double yeah. disc? And he's like, oh, 75,572. Yeah, it takes Ed kind of goes, huh? And he goes, oh, it's a double. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> I didn't even re- like, is counting grooves an actual thing? Like, no, no. I, I didn't think so. That was just the bullshit thing. That, that's just a clever, funny fucking joke. That's great. That's really funny. Um, And then. When you think about it, I, I guess the Stones picked up on it because uh, good, in, good. in their set, Mick Mick went over to Ronnie and, and Mick said to Ronnie, hey, Ronnie, how many grooves are in the 10 record? And Ronnie's like, oh, 15,000. Uh, hey, that that's good because no, not a lot of people had the 10 record at that point. That's true. That's true. So it's hard to find. Mm-hmm. That, that means the Rolling Stones were true. Pearl Jam fans right there. They're true jammers, faithful, whatever you want to call them, jamily members. <laughs> uh anyway, that again, I think that's that's one of my favorite yeah, moments oh, from this. Great moment. Yeah. Yeah. State of Love and Trust. Ed 
missing some lyrics and laughing it off and it kind of has a little bit of the old school groove for a split second until jack is transitioning kind of his cymbal heavy rendition but there's no one beat on this like there would be in some of the versions that we covered in 95 which i believe we covered the last week which kind of had that kind of bounce at the end of it that was just high off the snare drum interesting that they forfeited that idea and they went on with something a little bit more what was standard would say to love and trust with jack mike gets another great solo here i thought that after that funny moment with the lines and the record joke it was cool for him to kind of like now everyone's looking right because ed pointed mm-hmm. him out and maybe maybe father rolling stone fans didn't even know his name and here you go point him out so now they're watching so this is kind of his big moment and it's a great state of love and trust solo right and i think even before the song he said mike starts this one so i think yeah it was just kind yeah. of teed up beforehand too uh do the evolution is your penultimate from this show the second ever performance and kind of like wishlist in the beginning just a little bit of how did we write the song what we've never really played it in front of these people before just the one time in that small club but he's getting on the speaker he's doing the scream and gets right back up and he, he goes into buying stocks out of the day in the crash line and obviously that's in the next line however nobody's gonna pick up on it then we pick up on it now because that's that's just what we do here and then when he's supposed to be singing the buying stocks on the day of the crash line he changes it to i'm ahead i'm the man i'm the first mammal to wear pants so he's picking up on it and and kind of changing on the fly which is just again like they're figuring out these songs nobody at that point especially stones fans have heard it before they don't know what's going on they don't know what it's gonna even become so it doesn't matter it's a beautiful train wreck is what it is gets a couple of moments here that work really well for Stone and that's the funky solo that he has in the first solo the second solo is very good it's just kind of an earworm of a sound that 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 first one though yeah and you just don't need to think Stone gets on the camera a little bit for the first time in a long time he doesn't get a lot of time but yeah this was great Stone show all the way around I thought that he really this was his moment and yeah I love both those solos he gets to sing the hallelujah choir all by himself too that's right. Hitting that, hitting that falsetto. Yeah, and what was interesting is that when you hear the Hallelujah, you, you kind of think the the song usually doesn't halt in progression at all. 
usually when you get versions nowadays, but this sort of felt like, okay, we're almost stopping the song for this little part. I thought that that was a little interesting, and it was kind of like a, a stop, okay, now we're getting back into it, instead of keep the beat going over this little hallelujah and, and not really changing that part. But it seemed like Jack kind of took a step back from it. We got to study up on some of the other later Jack versions from 1998. I don't know if he brings that back at all, but interesting that in the second version that that that's what's on his mind for this little spot it could have just been a confidence thing again like if that's going into a bridge like that is an awkward transition he might have just wanted to make sure he just got through it and did the simple thing and just don't do anything kind of crazy just get to the get to the part and keep it going yeah i think it's just probably just trying to keep it simple it's raw but it's a very early indicator that you can tell the band really likes the song and oh, they, think, yeah. they think something of it. And I think they they know that on an even bigger stage than this, when it's going to all be Pearl Jam fans, they know that they're going to bring in that crowd. I don't know if they think that 75,000 Brazilian fans or Argentinian fans are going to sing along with, with the guitar solo or anything like that. I don't think they're thinking that at that point, but I'm thinking, okay, I think people will like this one and let's see where it goes from there. Again, we've used this a lot. Evolution. <laughs> Think of the ones from Yield that were chosen for this show, like they were chosen for a reason. Yeah. And they're the three that have been played live the most. Yeah. So it totally makes sense. Yeah. And probably the only three that really have been continuously kept around. That's fair. Yeah. If uh, anything, like Low Light's the one that's broken into that group. Oh, but it, it took yeah. a long time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Yep, absolutely low light. But again, like you're like I said, wasn't until way after yield. So, yeah. all right, they got one more, and then your real party starts. Thanks for making it easy on on us. It was a piece of cake, and they're gonna close the show with black. That is interesting because we're going to release that CBGB show that we mentioned before, and that show opens with black. That was the first time they opened with black. This is the first time they close with black. That's an ultra rare setless closure. They've only done it four times. One of the other times that they did it was not the next night, but the, the third night of this. Then the other version is technically a bridge school show. So it's kind of okay. Yeah, they closed with it, but it's not uh, anything substantial. And then one time in 2000, they used it as a closer <laughs> in a legit show. Yeah. yeah. So not this is not common and i think even closing the set like closing a main set it would become more common around 98 2000 so this that's what this feels like this feels like you're more of closing just a main set and that's really all they get they don't get non-core at all but what's interesting is saying we got two nights we're going to treat these two nights here like they're back-to-back nights so black is kind of like a stay tuned for what we have tomorrow night which the next night they would close the show with Leadbetter. So both shows closed Black Leadbetter, Black Leadbetter. All yeah. four. Yeah, part one, part two, and then part one and part two again. Yeah, it's interesting. Right. Exactly. And the, this, But this version of Black, I think, is it going back to like what you said at the beginning. It's a li- little wanting. I don't think it's fully there. It felt like a little bit like they were ready to be done and get out. Yeah, I, I wonder if that had to do with like a, a strict time restriction too, because it just Indeed. felt like yeah. it felt like it, it was abridged, like they they had to cut it off and, and you know say goodbye. Because usually you kind of get after the solo, you kind of get that little extra juice afterwards, but it just 
felt like you didn't get any of kind of the yeah. the song yeah. has sort of a, a you know a plane landing where you don't just land the plane and then get off you kind of land the plane and then you gotta you gotta trail off and, and you gotta get back to your gate and yeah, that's kind of how this, i see black but the show is one hour on the dot so yeah they were on a strict time limit absolutely so yeah but that's hey i think that uh you know that's the identity of this too and and it, and it's very interesting and and look 14 songs we did this as a very traditional old school live on four legs set right here talking about every single one as much as we could but the individual stuff a lot of it stands out a lot of it had a reason to talk about it for two or three minutes so let's give it a reason to talk about it for another minute or so let's pick three that we liked of these 14 that we can say are the top moments from this i'll go uh jeremy the ending of jeremy's my number three thought it was very cool uh loved hearing jack play on it uh given to flies my number two felt like that's where they really kind of started to feel a little more comfortable and the the little jeff and mike moment at the end is just gravy on that but my number one's corduroy we we talked about how good this corduroy is uh absolutely the best song from this show yeah uh that's that's not too far off from what i had i i, th- I think i'll swap out given the fly now I, I i think i was gonna have that in there but i actually i really like this version of dissonant i don't know if that really came off in conversation here uh just because i was going off on ed's voice but it's just a little flutter in ed's voice listening to that i thought it it changed dissonant i thought dissonant kind of had just a different overall fun vibe to it where it wasn't it wasn't dragging itself redeemed the song a little bit in my eyes which is not one that i really care for at this stage in the game as much as i used to so i'm going to put dissident at number three i'm going to put corduroy at number two all the things that you mentioned with it very very good working off of a very good uh, corduroy from last week which is always good sometimes when when you're covering shows back-to-back weeks and all that where you get a song you kind of get some hot streaks of songs i think we've gotten it with black and we've gotten it with river mirror in the past where every week it seems like the last one pales in comparison to the next one um and it feels like corduroy is uh, on a little bit of a streak right now but i think my number one is actually last exit uh last exit <laughs> okay. Yeah, just brought in just a, a dynamic to the show that I was I was looking for in the beginning, and it, uh, some trepidation there, I think, and maybe, maybe it's just playing that song and hearing the beat, and 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 not covering Last Exit for like a month or so, and sometimes you do get a, a refresher on some of these songs, and especially in this era, the Jack era, I love Last Exit version, so yeah, uh, very very good. I think that's my number one rating this is going to be really interesting it is Uh, yeah this is this is a little screwy and while i like this show i don't think i can give it much above a certain a certain number it's got there's got an artificial ceiling on it right this isn't going to be a this isn't going to be up there with your eights nines and tens just because this one i'm i'm gonna give this one a five really like it's uh the the setlist choice is for the most part uninspired and but that's to be expected that that's not that's not their fault that's what they had to do you're opening for the rolling stones you know you last exited is and the yield stuff is really the only interesting stuff that you're getting out of this a lot of it is like stuff you hear all the time some good versions of songs like we talked about but you get good versions of songs at every pearl jam show the the yield stuff is great, but a lot of that stuff is especially these 
you know, do the evolution wish list we talked about, given to fly, were not yet the big moments that they would become. So they're kind of in a in an early state here, and yeah, the really really nothing to go back to here for me. Uh, the some of the in between banter and stuff is cool, but a lot of it is just like we'd said many times. It's just kind of awkward and weird. So get gonna give this one a five. Yeah. I like listening to this. I, I, I like the 1997 shows for some, and maybe it's just the idea that it's in between eras and it's, it's of that era that I like the most, which is kind of 96, 98 and a little bit after 95 as well, which I really like the most. And it's sort of floating on its own Island and you're not sure which kind of Pearl jam it is. But that's the intrigue from it. But thinking in sort of a, a grander scale and where it rates with all of the other shows, like it's not anywhere close to anything. It's a six. It's okay. a very high six, though. It's a six. Yeah, uh, you get very early versions of the yield stuff, which is is cool to hear, and. It's, you know, I, I feel whenever I do give a show this low of a number, it's because of negative versions, but I feel like giving this a six is giving it credit, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's not going to be one that reaches the upper echelon of, of shows. No, no. But it, look, it, it, it's it's unique in and of itself. It is because again they don't do yeah. anything else from this era, so uh, it's just very cool. Okay, you know maybe some point because you know we did the first one. Maybe when we do the other ones, maybe we'll just do them in chronological order, so we just yeah. kind of yeah. can tell the story. Maybe this becomes a November tradition for us. Who knows? <laughs> Next- yeah, I'm, I'm interested to do those now. I'm interested to see how those go back and revisit those other ones and see if they kind of how they progress through the through the four nights. Right. I think at least two of the other ones are on YouTube. Yeah. I watched a little bit. I watched a little bit of the third night and the third night it's raining and they're all wearing these like body suits that look like just <laughs> jumpsuits with like huge hood. And I think it seems like Jeff is wearing like a, a full bank robber ski mask kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. It, was, it was tough to tell. But it, it's it, the visuals are very interesting. The visuals from the show was, were very interesting, too. And that that drew me in. But um, yeah, maybe 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 this becomes like a November tradition where we just kind of we, we need a little bit of a break after covering a 32 song show. So we do a, a 14 one and uh you know, maybe maybe this 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 is what we do, and we go in order for the next four years. What about that? Sounds good. So next week is Thanksgiving week, and a lot of you are going to be in the car. So we're deciding we're going to take the holiday, and uh, we're going to give you an episode during the holiday because why not? And we're going to do a year we haven't done much this year. We haven't done too much 2006. So we're going to do Albany 2006 which is is good. It's it's a good show. It's got some really good moments. It, it's very early on in that avocado tour run. I believe it's one of the first real full shows and and I believe we get a song returning for the first time in about a decade at that show. So that'll be very interesting to break down and talk about. 
But that is a Patreon requested episode, and uh, we are going to get to that next week, and that should be uh, that should be a fun one. So anybody on the Thanksgiving ride going out to to see relatives and stuff like that will have something to listen to if they choose to listen to. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in this week. Look, 1997. We're not going to do it very much often. We got four more shows from this year to to actually do. So this was interesting to kind of go back on. So thanks everybody for tuning into this one. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, I miss you already. I miss you always. Oh man, I don't have a good Stones quote to end this on. Uh, but sometimes I guess you just can't always get what you want. Some girls only has 493 grooves. How'd you count that? Howdy guitar, raving man, raving And Ronnie knows how many notes on Pearl Jam's record 10. Fifteen thousand five hundred and seventy-eight. Thank you. Yay!